Welcome to For the Life of Me podcast, where I share musings and perspectives on how we really, truly live a life divine. In a world with so much turmoil and suffering and unrest, uh, we are truly in a moment of planetary transformation, and we are the ones we've been waiting for. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Julie Pyatt, your host. Hey, Podcast Tribe, it's such an honor and blessing and joy to be connecting across the airwaves all around the planet to share perspectives and experiences that allow us to expand into further embodiment of what it really means to be divine humans, living as way showers and and truly dedicating our lives to creating a better world. I'm really, really honored and blessed and excited to welcome my dear friend Doug Evans to the podcast this week. Doug, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Julie. I feel spiritual just being in your presence. (laughs) It's funny. So we got to give you guys a little bit of backstory. And uh, Doug and I are are great friends for many years now. And uh, we've been getting to know each other through a journey of transformation and new life experiences. And Doug and I just now, we exchanged sacred gifts in the form of rocks. And so, Doug, what did you give me? I gave you a 5,000-pound solid piece of marble that was carved into a soaking tub (laughs) that I brought from the other side of the world when you told me about your experiences in Dominhar and how the stone was a portal to time-traveling. And I... That was my little gift. I know. Like, are you kidding me? So Doug is an amazing entrepreneur. We're going to get into that. He's truly just, you know, you're one in a million. You're just, you're such a, an expression of, of pure uniqueness and individuality and really embodying who you are. And that's why you are such a beautiful, beautiful soul. And I have been privileged to watch your journey and watch your experience in different areas of expressions. And uh, when I was launching Shrimu, my plant-based cheese company, Um, you graciously called me and you said, Julie, what about the cheese? What are you doing with the cheese? And you said, please come down to my retreat center that I'm creating in the desert. We'll have like a workshop and we'll go through some elements. So I came down with Tam Soden, a very dear friend of mine, and we stayed with you for a couple days. And one of the most extraordinary things is, is that you have um, actual natural hot spring water on your land. And you had brought these massive stone soaking tubs to your facility. And so I spent quite a few meditation sessions exploring the idea of time travel and the actual experiment and experience of time travel because Falco, who is the founder of Dominher, a spiritual community in in Northern Italy, he had taught that it was the stones that hold the codes for time travel. Three days before the pandemic, before we were in quarantine, Doug arrived on my land and delivered this 5,000, 6,000 pound gorgeous piece of blonde rock. And it's just 
I fell down on the ground in ecstasy. It's beyond. Thank you, Doug. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> I mean, it's where it belongs. So um, so I gifted Doug a Shiva Lingam that has been on my land for many, many, many years. It was gifted to me in 2003 uh, from a very dear spiritual mystic man named Gustav Schindler, who owned a gallery called Sacred Stone Gallery in Redondo Beach. He was truly, truly a dear, dear friend of mine, an ally in creating um, uh, new systems and a new way of experiencing love on the planet. And this particular stone that you are taking with you is a Shiva Lingam. It comes from a sacred river in India, and they actually in, are in the shape of eggs, uh, sort of like a, a multidimensional uh, egg form. And they're uh, considered to be the divine manifestation of Shiva and worshipped in India. So this particular one um, has been uh, blessed by many solstice ceremonies um, and also by a Mayan elder and also a, a Vedic um, Nath yogi named Gurunath Siddhanath. So I was a little choked up when I hugged it goodbye today. Mm. But... Um, I, I love the fact that we are creating community between your land and my land. And as we are on this precipice of embarking on creating a new world, um, I am excited to see what this exchange is going to mean in a mystic sense. Mm. Um, so we're going to talk about a lot of business and physical things that we're doing in this world, like Shrimu and like Sprout Tarot and uh, everything that you're doing. Uh, but, but there's much more. It's like like we think we it just exchange rocks. I mean, there's something very deep about what we did. What we what we did today will create an energetic shift that will change the timeline forever. Mm. Like every every act means something. And every four seconds we have six different possibilities that we can choose. And so uh, I think we made a big statement by exchanging. The Shiva Lingam is probably a thousand pounds at least. Yeah, I couldn't move it on my own. <laughs> no, it takes usually like four or five guys in a blanket can sort of drag it. It's extremely, extremely heavy. But um, we had a special forklift here today, so we yeah. were able to do it. So anyway, so before we jump in, I'm, <clears throat> I'm going to um, tell Doug a little bit about this uh, technology that I have here in the studio from Dom and Her. This is actually Falco's invention. It's not really his invention, but he described himself as a being with memory. And he brought this technology forth in Dominher. And this technology is called uh, Selfica. And it is a use of um, different kinds of, of copper metal structures and forms along with alchemical liquid. So what is inside this sphere is not just plain water. It's been prepared alchemical liquid maybe over as many as 40 years. And then if you look at the top, these paintings, there's coding and paintings which um, align this device to me. And this device is programmed um, to assist me in the full expression of my mission. Um, there's only maybe 200 of this technology in the northern uh, hemisphere. I mean, not hemisphere. I'm going to say nor North America because I'm probably wrong about that. But um, anyway, so this is uh, called Sphero Self. It's coded to me. 
Um, and uh, uh, just, it's amazing. The temples in Dominher, Dominher has the largest underground temple that was built by 50 people over 45 years ago with buckets and shovels. It is considered the eighth wonder of the world by the Italian government, but also beyond the beauty, beyond the mosaics, beyond the stained glass, beyond all the magnificent artistry, there is this technology in the walls and connecting within the earth and into the rocks. It's connecting with ley lines on the planet that are assisting us in creating a new timeline on planet earth. So um, I wanted to share that with you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and, um, and also because I know that you are just such a beloved warrior and person that is committed to being a part of, of this world. And so I want to talk to you about what are you creating in your life and, and talk to me about sprouts and, and everything. Yeah, I think my journey was really... Um, a rough path in the beginning, like not, you know, I, I mentioned in my book how when I was diagnosed or prescribed glasses because I couldn't see, there was so much shame around wearing them and fear of being called four eyes that I didn't wear my glasses for the first seven or eight years. And, and this is when you're a small child? Yes, yeah, second grade or something. And so that obviously affected my grades, my ability to do homework. And I don't know where that shame came from, but I remember when I got the glasses, I would put them on and then look around and walk down the street and I'd take two steps and I'd take them back off again. Then I'd walk a little and they were going on and off and on and off. And then finally I said, I'm not wearing them. And so... That kind of resulted, uh, and I don't know if that was the cause or was correlated, but in being the worst student that you could be, being a delinquent and going through multiple schools, and then finally ending up at 17 years old, having been in trouble most of my life, deciding that I was going to join the U.S. Army as a paratrooper. Oh, my God. Okay, so just before you go any further, that's completely shocking to me because everything I know about you, I would have written a completely different childhood and, and, and actually educational person. Like, that's really surprising. Yeah, so I cheated my way through high school, and I joined the 82nd Airborne at age 17 because my friends were going to jail, they were on drugs, they were in trouble, and I thought that I needed discipline and that if I joined the army, I believed, I watched a lot of TV back then, so I believed that be all you can be and the army college fund. So I went into the recruiter and I said, what is the roughest, toughest thing you have? I want discipline, I want confidence. And so that was the 82nd Airborne. And so that was like a crazy but self-guided um, decision to make meaningful and masterful change in my life. And once in the army, and I was deployed two weeks later um, to the army, I got off the plane in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, a bus, a plane, 17 inches of snow on the ground. Um, they shave your head. They take away your pos your possessions. The, if you look at them the wrong way, you're doing push-ups and sit-ups in the snow. And I literally wanted to get out. I could not imagine 
you know, years of this. And so I fought my way through the first day and at 11 o'clock at night, I went to the drill sergeant and I said, you've got the wrong guy. I want to go home. I'm going to be a good boy. I'll make my room up. I'll, I'll go to community college. I'll get a job. And he looks at me and he goes, there's no way out. And I stood there in silence and I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, there's no bars on the window, but you signed a contract and you are an indentured servant. And if you leave, you'll be AWOL and they will find you. And then you'll do hard labor in prison. So soldier, get out of my office. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so that, that was like one crazy you know, shift in life. And I had several of those along the way. Wait, and how long, so how long were you in, how long were you in? It's a very, I was in for 13 months. Okay. Mm -hmm. Which was less than I signed up for. How did that happen? Well, I decided at that moment that I was going to become a general. <laughs> okay. And that I was going to literally do, I was going to surrender to this higher power of Uncle Sam. And I said, whatever they tell me to do, I'm going to do. So beyond the push-ups and the sit-ups and the running, I would read and I did basic training, infantry training, combat engineer training, airborne training, unit armor training, and special forces, explosives and demolitions training as a remote course while I was in there. And I took massive personal initiative. And then I got nominated to go to officer candidate school. And then they found out that I had a juvenile record. And then two weeks later, I was on the street again back in New York City. Okay. Wow. That's, a, that's really, really fascinating. But there's irony. I'll just tell you the irony. Mm -hmm. Normally, for fraudulent enlistment, you get a dishonorable discharge. And at best, you get a general discharge. Because of my over-the-top, overzealous, enthusiastic <laughs> time there, my commanding officer gave me an Army Achievement Medal and an honorable discharge. That's amazing. For my fraudulent enlistment. Because you're, you're not allowed to enlist if you have a felony or you have a... Did you have a felony? I, know, or I had, you a, had a, a misdemeanor. A misdemeanor. Sorry. Sorry about that. I think, I think what happened is the recruiter has a quota. Sure. And they're trying to fill boots as many boots as they can. Mm -hmm. So even though I disclosed that I had a juvenile record, the, the odds that you go from being an enlisted person to going to be officer candidate school is like one in 100,000. Wow. Um, and so they just never thought that I would excel and get to that level. And if I was a normal enlisted trooper, they don't do a top secret security clearance and background check, mm -hmm. et cetera. And my record as a juvenile of 16 years old was sealed. Mm -hmm. But I didn't realize sealed just means like a rubber stamp on it that says sealed. Right. And obviously not protected from, you know, the government doing background checks. Right. I see. I see. All right. Amazing. So um, how did you progress from there? So when I got out of the army, mm -hmm. I clearly did not want to break any laws. Yes. Like I, I was, I learned enough in the army about discipline, about leadership. So I started to work 
Like I really would work. I worked as a waiter. I worked as a busboy. I worked in restaurants. And then the closest thing that was my real passion was art. And I liked art and I liked design and graphic design and graffiti right from, you know, growing up in the hood. And so you're a graffiti artist. I was a graffiti artist. So when I got out, I couldn't do graffiti. And it was my karate kid moment where I found a 70 plus year old graphic designer named Paul Rand, who designed the logos for IBM, ABC, UPS, Westinghouse. And he was working on the corporate identity for a new startup. And that was my first time hearing the word startup mm-hmm. for Steve Jobs at Next Computer. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. And like, I had no idea of what any of this meant. I never touched a computer before. And Paul took me under his wing and I worked for him for seven years as an unpaid intern apprentice. I still had to do my side hustles in order to pay the bills, but I got to be exposed to this prodigy and the way that he thought and his library of 10,000 books and his home that he built that was like in the style of Mies van der Rohe's. And he had original Picassos and Miro's mm. on, on his walls. And everything that he did was just so designed like really designed. Mm. And I learned a lot from Paul. And then I worked for him literally until the day he died. We were exchanging faxes and things. And I was in the hospital the day before he died. Then I went out on my own and I became relatively successful financially, work-wise. And then my aunt got diabetes and they chopped off her feet below her ankles, (gasps) which was tragic. Mm. And then my uncle got heart disease and died. And then my mother got stomach cancer and died. Mm. And then my father got heart disease and died. And my mother and father died in the same hospital. And my brother, and we grew up relatively poor. And when we started to be able to buy food, we both became, you know, compulsive overeaters. And my brother was worse or a better overeater than me. (laughs) And he became morbidly obese, developed type 2 diabetes, had the first of three strokes and a heart attack. And that's when I had my kind of awakening that I needed to change something or something was wrong or was I genetically cursed? And if then, then maybe I needed to prepare to die. So that was the movement for me, the moment of the movement to shift to whole food, plant-based lifestyle. Right. And so talk to me about, uh, is that when juice entered your world? Yeah. In, in 1999, uh, I went to a festival or a kind of a seminar in New York that was hosted, I don't know if they're still around, called the Big Apple Vegetarian Society, and they had a battle of the diets, and there was someone vegan and someone um, vegetarian and someone raw, and I was somewhat fascinated by the raw guy. This guy really, I'll leave him nameless at this point, <laughs> but he went really off the, off the wagon. But then it was profound for him to talk about raw food, raw plant food. And then I bought David Wolf's first book, Nature's First Law, The Raw Food Diet. And then my partner at the time, Denise and I, went to Harbin Hot Springs 
to go to a raw food retreat with 20 hippies running around naked eating It's like fruits. a nudist retreat, right? Yeah, nudist. That's so hilarious. Clothing optional. So good. <laughs> and I, that was another moment of shame for me because mm-hmm. everyone was walking around naked and getting ready to go into the tubs. And I said to the yoga teacher, uh, Kim, I said, Kim, I feel really uncomfortable taking off my, my shorts. And, and she's like, well, you're going to feel really more uncomfortable wearing them because you're going to be the only one wearing them. And I was like, oh, I don't know. And like, I don't like, you know, what most creatures on the planet walk around without clothes. Like, That's why true. is there this whole shaming about comparative size and mm-hmm. shape and but, you know, it took me decades. I would have kept my bathing suit on, too. Yeah. Well, now, decades <laughs> later, now I, I really don't care. I think I healed all that at Burning Man. You did. Oh, yeah. At Burning Man, it was just so comfortable that I, I realized that no one really cares. And how many times have you been to Burning Man? I was three times. I was Three ki- times. Take us through your journey with Jews, because I really think this is an important subject and one that could be really beneficial to anybody listening to this podcast, because I've seen you as my friend really take this experience and transform. And I need to, I need to acknowledge you for that. I need to really tell you that it is not everybody's choice to actually transform. There are plenty of people that go through experiences. The universe gives us all intense experiences, you know, to wake us up, to bring us back to who we are. And many times people, beings will choose to just blame someone else or become a victim or just not get the lesson. And I have to say, being your friend and watching you in this journey and seeing what has happened in your life, um, you took a a very, very difficult challenge, even devastating situation through the demise of Juicero. Um, You know, you were heartbroken uh, and really misunderstood and mischaracterized. Not that you didn't have some things to learn. I'm sure you had some imbalances you were working through, but you really have taken that as as a transformation. And so what did you learn along that journey and what can you offer those of us that are in the world that are feeling afraid, you know, or feeling that we don't want to risk that humiliation that you had when you were, you know, the child with your glasses or the public, uh, you know, annihilation or, you know, it, it feels like it's the Colosseum, you know, back in the Roman days and that, you know, people are just being thrown into the ring and just let's blow that person up and now yeah. that person. And it's very, um, it's very surreal and it's, it's very, uh, very, you know, um, it, it certainly doesn't feel safe. Uh, My journey with juice began back in 1999 when I liked eating fruit, but I didn't like eating vegetables. So juicing, and I would remember my early juices, were green juice with some fruit. And we would go to the local juice bar and we bought a Jack LaLanne juicer. And then on the journey, we had heard about pressed juice. And we heard about this $2,500 Norwalk juicer. And we learned about Ann Wigmore and Gerson therapy, and that people were curing and treating cancer with green juice, unsweetened green juice. So 
My partner at the time, Denise and I, got our first Norwalk juicer, and this is 1999, and we were juicing for ourselves, and then by 2002, Denise started making juice, and we were selling juice um, delivery out of our loft, um, cold-pressed juice, organic juice, in glass bottles. I remember contacting the now executive chairman of Beyond Meat, Seth Goldman, who was the founder of Honest Tea, and he had given us, gifted us a pallet of glass bottles in the, in the early stages. And our challenge was we couldn't receive them because they were bulk loaded and all this complexity. But so the journey with juice began in 1999. And then in 2002 to 2012, we had the first cold pressed organic juice company in, in glass bottles in the United States. And we were doubling in size every year. And we had 10 stores in New York City. And for all all views looked very successful and we were doing well. And then we took on a partner and then the partner thought that they had better dreams and visions for us. So Denise and I transitioned out of Organic Avenue. And we had sold a lot of juice and learned a lot about juice. I went from one juice press to five juice presses doing five gallons an hour. Then we got larger ones that did 15 gallons an hour. Then we bought this monster that did 500 gallons an hour. It's as big as this room. It was the size of Matt's truck. Wow. And so I knew a lot about cold pressed juice. And then after we left Organic Avenue, I was saying, where am I going to get my juice? It was a real thing. Like I was used to drinking concentrations of green leafy vegetables in the form of juice. And I loved juice and I believed in juice and I drank it. And all the juicers on the market were the centrifugal spinning juicers or auger juicers. And I loved a juice press. And but it was such a pain to go buy the produce, wash the produce, chop the produce, clean make the, the juice, machine, clean the machine, clean the bags. And then I did real research and came up with the, this, these data. It may have changed today because now smoothies and blenders have become more um, prolific and, and used. But at the time, people at a home juicer were using it once or twice a month. But people who had a Nespresso machine were using it once or twice a day. And I looked at the Nespresso machine. I was like, wow, this is really simple. You know, you add water, it heats it, and then you put in a pod and it makes a juice. And so I said, how could you apply something like this to making a juice? Right? And the affirmative um, and formidable action of the no cleaning and the convenience was the priority. Yes. So it the press itself was integral to the process. And you're a chef. You've made nut milk by hand. Mm-hmm. You've made juice. Like the process of making cold pressed juice is a simple one. You take 100% produce. You dice it, slice it, chop it, shred it into a slurry. So it is not juice in that stage. It is a slurry of the 100% mix of 
the water molecules and the juice and the fiber. And then there's a process where you need to separate the juice from the fiber and you, you do that. And that can be done um, using a nut milk bag and wringing it by hand or it could be done in a press. And the way it goes in a press is you put it in, in these two plates, press against each other, and it takes a lot of force because there's occlusion of the, the water as it's trying to drip through because the fiber is designed in, in the water, the, the cytoplasm and the cells of the, of, the, of the produce are designed to keep the produce in. So it's, it's, it's like a sponge, but very hard. But it's not impossible to get it out. So I, my, the, the first part of the invention was if you could take that cheesecloth bag and put it in another bag with a spout, you could then put that into the machine and not have to clean it. So there's a whole level of engineering mm-hmm. on that. Mm-hmm. But the harder part was the whole fresh supply chain where we had a 100,000 square foot facility and we had different lines that we would wash the different produce where we would triple wash every type of produce because it's different to wash an apple than it is to a lemon, than it is to kale, than it is to cilantro or parsley. And then the entire facility was operating at 35 degrees, so a few degrees above freezing. Mm. So enormous overhead. And you'd have to wash down the entire facility because it was raw. Um, raw and fresh and short shelf life and produce. So there was huge risk of E. coli, Listeria, Salmonella. And when we thought about juice, like all juice that was sold in a bottle was pasteurized, either using heat or cold, but pasteurized. And to me, being very sensitive to subtle energies, I could feel the, the impact of fresh juice in my body versus processed food. So I could smell the difference, I could taste the difference, and I could feel the difference, and I would not, um, at any price, if someone gave me a pasteurized juice, I was like, not interested, I'd give them the Heisman. But if it was raw juice, I'd have it. There's a whole other level of complexity when you're dealing with produce, because if you're on the East Coast or you're on the West Coast and you buy your produce from the supermarket, whether it's Whole Foods or Safeway or Ralph's, more than likely that produce is a week to two weeks old at best. And you can start to see how it wilts and how it's not as fresh or as crisp or as clean. So part of what I wanted to do was make sure we are getting fresh produce every day directly from the farm. Mm-hmm. So the I was, like when we talk about lessons, I was an over-the-top zealot extremist in quality, attention to detail, and sourcing and processing. And because we raised a lot of money at, at Juicero, um, there was pressure to build a big company. Okay, how much money did you raise at Juicero? Um, substantially over a hundred million dollars. That's incredible. And what I want to know from you, because, you know, to hear you share your backstory of, of so many in your family being, being ill, I didn't know that about you. Um, 
to have really seen your whole family before your eyes become sick and, you know, and, you know, dismembered and, and then to lose your mother and your father and to have your brother also, you know, you know, in that, on that trajectory, what was it within you? Like, like, how did you see juice for the planet? What was your mission? What was in your heart when you, uh, stepped into juice and, you know, first organic Avenue, and then we're moving into Juicero. Like what, what, what was the why of Juicero? So the U S dietary guidelines recommend seven to 13 servings of fruits and vegetables. The average American was consuming less than one and they considered fresh juice to be a legitimate serving of fruits and vegetables. And I saw that if you can make it easy for people to consume a fresh juice, you are getting the micronutrients, the phytonutrients, the polyphenols, this filtered water through the plant that you were getting a, a legitimate serving of fruits and vegetables, organic, and it was replacing a coffee with sugar and milk or a soda or an energy drink. So considering the fact that I felt juice was good and that we live in a convenience culture and that I had spent 10 years of my life professionally making juice and that there were no um, juice presses available to consumers. And then there were stacks of layers that one, the consumer who's buying produce in the supermarket, it's not fresh. The other part is home juicers would have enormous amounts of food waste because you can't buy one stalk of celery and a half a cucumber and a quarter bunch of spinach. So people would buy everything that they would need. They wouldn't properly wash it. So they weren't reducing the microbial load. And then they'd have food waste because by the time they were ready to use it, their already old produce was going bad. So I thought that I wanted to create a fresh food company where the first product was juice. Mm -hmm. And I experienced, I, I experienced Juicero. I tasted all the flavors. Um, of course we had a machine and I have to say that the quality of the juice was very high and you could vibrationally feel all of that in the juice. That was never a question. Um, I don't really, I don't really understand exactly what, what went, what went wrong, but what went wrong with Juicero? I mean, you know, for one, and I think you said before, we were misunderstood. So from the first, you know, media strategy, right? We made a decision. We hired a PR firm. The PR firm said, we can get you a feature in the New York Times. Um, but, big but, if you do a feature in the New York Times, you have to give them an exclusive. So that meant when the first article came out in the New York Times, everybody else was playing catch up because no one knew about Juicero. So that immediately alienated all of these other publications who never got to see under the, under the hood of the, the strategy and the technology behind the sustainable packaging, behind the fresh supply chain, be, behind the logic of the software, 
connectivity, the industrial design, the electrical engineering, the mechanical. They knew nothing. They were getting all of their information from the article in the New York Times. And the article in the New York Times was snarky mm-hmm. because the guy who did the article um, like looked at it as Doug bewitched Silicon Valley. So this narrative was Juice Guy raises seven hundred raises a hundred million dollars to create a seven hundred dollar juicer for rich assholes. Mm-hmm. And like a lot of ink. And so from the time the company was announced, it was expensive machine, like unknown juice guy for um, with a lot of money behind it. So that immediately made us a target. Mm-hmm. And then the people who knew, they loved their machine. They, they loved it. They used it. And so we were doing well where we sold thousands of machines, over a million packs, and you know, generating in the first year over a million dollars a month in revenue. So there was one view of the world that the business was very successful. But then there were haters and trolls and reporters that were just obsessed with this $120 million that we had raised. And to put it into scale, I came from running a lemonade stand in New York City. I didn't know anything about Silicon Valley. I didn't know the culture. I didn't know the money. I didn't have friends there. Like the fact that they chose to fund um, the company was bizarre and a miracle. And um, but I didn't understand the risks associated. Mm-hmm. So if if I were to look back, and if no one knew how much money we raised, and we just had this expensive juicer, no one would even write an article mm-hmm. about it. But so people were obsessed with the money component of that. Well, I think that you, um, that's, that's really, really helpful and, and really important to understand. But I feel like the big, the big misstep was that your personal story was not told because the truth of the matter is you are the real deal. You have come into this through a very authentic, organic, personal experience that has brought you into this life of of eating raw, of being uh, you know an advocate of plant based nutrition, of wanting to foster health and well being for others, um, and I don't think it was an accident. It was it, that you raised all that money and that you got into this sort of population that you didn't have any roots or any friends in. I think it is a testament to your ability um, in. Uh, communication and your persistence and yeah. and you know you really are a master at at really thinking of things and and finding a way finding a way so I know it was incredibly devastating it was really hard for Rich and I to you know watch you uh, go through that and you know we always felt your heart and we all we always knew who you were and um, and so you you went away you went to Burning Man where you were accepted um, you spent a lot of time in I think um, self-reflection meditating you know yeah. and just being the Doug that you are um, you know living in the desert and and being with yourself and so now let's talk about um, Sprouts and the spirituality of Sprouts, the equality of Sprouts, and where are you now as one of the 
leading way showers of health um, that is in the space today and on the planet. Okay. So, Julie, I'm not a historian. I know little about geography and history. And a lot of what I do is I operate from intuition and from the heart. So after Burning Man, and I felt like, wow, the desert is magical. Like I love the sunrise, the sunsets. I like the heat. Um, It would be great if I could have water. And so when I looked at like where I was going to live and what I was going to do, this thing hit me and said, oh, I can have, um, like, I think there's got to be, I had learned, I'd never stayed in Joshua Tree. I knew nothing about it really, except it was a U2 album. And, (laughs) And so, but I had this idea that Joshua Tree was close to L.A., and that if there were hot springs in Joshua Tree, that'd be like a great thing. Because I'd love to be able to soak in my hot springs and be like, to me, when I'm in hot springs, it feels like as comfortable as being in the womb. Like I feel weightless and I'm feeling very happy in mm-hmm. hot springs. So I, I thought like maybe I'll get a, a place, I'll buy some land, I'll have hot springs and I'll reflect and I'll watch the sunrises, sunsets, and the stars. Like that was my world that I was thinking of. And then I found the hot springs and then I moved and I erected my Burning Man tent. I bought a, bur- a tent from your Tastic, a Burning Man tent. And then it was an hour and 15 minutes away from Whole Foods. So not only was I in the desert, I was in a food desert. Mm-hmm. And there was a farmer's market once a week. So to supplement my food intake, I went to the survival part of my brain that knew about sprouting and said, oh, I, I remember saying like 20 years ago when I learned about sprouting, it's like, wow, this is so easy. If I ever was homeless, I would just grow my own sprouts. It's like so easy. And so I started to sprout. And within 30 days, 50% of my calories were coming from sprouts. And I started with mung beans and alfalfa sprouts. And then I was curious, not necessarily concerned, but sometimes I say I was concerned. So I started Googling nutritional benefits of sprouts. And there was a lot of stuff on there. National Institute of Health, peer-reviewed white papers, um, specifics about anti-cancer properties. And so I started to obsessively research uh, about sprouts and then looking at the techniques and looking at the history. And so I said, I can't believe everyone's not sprouting. Like, it's so easy. Um, It's so cheap. It's like, you know, 25 cents a serving that why isn't everyone sprouting? And then, so I went to New York. I pitched one publisher, one of the largest publishers in the world, St. Martin's Press, owned by Macmillan, and they bought my book on the spot. And I showed up there with some recipes made out of sprouts, some raw sprouts, and the publisher was like eating the sprouts during the meeting. And like <laughs> I knew like I, I was like in lock, stock, and barrel. And so I went back to Joshua Tree, and actually, technically, it's Wonder Valley. And I went to Wonder Valley, and I set up a sprout lab. And I started to sprout using jars and trays and 
bags and empty vessels and using soil and using unbleached paper towels and various sprouting mediums and buying from A to Z different seeds. And then I brought on a recipe developer who developed recipes for Leila Ali's book and for Oprah's book, and she was a professional writer of recipes. So she, and I gave her the challenge. I said, we need to do 40 recipes. They need to be all raw, and 50% have to be sprouts. Like the medium and the, the, the recipes need to contain 50% sprouts. And she's like, I'll do my best, and what do you want? And we, I said, I want some smoothies, I want some entrees, I want some soups, I want some desserts, I want to be kid-friendly. So we came up with these 40 recipes, and then I spent two years writing the book. A little less, a year and a half, writing the book. And the book is called The Sprout Book. And so getting ready to launch the book in April, the pandemic hits. <laughs> and like, I'm not going to talk about anything be beyond the book right now. Yes. The, the future, because I'm still like fleshing out the future. Mm -hmm. But the insight that I had on Sprouts was from the beginning of time, seeds germinated and grew into plants and trees and vegetables, and we had an abundance of land. So if we look at seeds in nature, they were designed to grow into mature plants and fruits and vegetables, and they took weeks or months or years till they provided and gave back and ready for harvest. And like that's where seeds were. Seeds germinated and sprouting was one step in their evolution to a mature vegetable. Fast forward to today, most people live in places where they do not have unlimited amounts of land. They don't farm, they don't garden, they don't grow their own food, they're living in boxes with sterile environments with water and refrigeration, but no gardens and no access to gardens. And so for me, I was living in a food desert where I had a lot of land, but it was barren desert and things don't grow in the land and in the desert very easily. So with the sprouting part, I realized that you could actually take control of your food by eating these seeds in their first stage of development, which were sprouting, and that you would get everything. You would get the fiber, you'd get the micronutrients, you'd get the phytonutrients, you'd get the prebiotics, you would get the soluble and insoluble fiber, you'd get the antioxidants. And what I learned in writing the book, when this was my self-education process, was if you take lentils, and I think the world agrees that vegetables are good for you. And Definitely. if you take, right? Mm -hmm. And lentils are part of many different cuisines. If you take a half a cup of lentils and you sprout them, you get a full cup or two cups because they'll continue to grow and sprout. In the process of sprouting them, you double the antioxidant value. 
just double, kind of crazy. You triple the amount of vitamin C and you're getting about seven grams of protein in a single cup of sprouts, of lentil sprouts and pea sprouts and azuki and mung bean and sunflower. So it turns out that not only are you getting your, your vitamins and minerals and nutrients and fiber from these sprouts, you're getting concentrated amounts in their tender stage that becomes extremely digestible, bioavailable, and fresh. And you can control your, your food program with, with sprouts mm-hmm. for pennies a serving. That's amazing. And it also, you know, you can do it at various different levels. So, I mean, you could start with just one jar in your kitchen, or you could create a little mini setup, like you've inspired Rich Roll, my husband, to start sprouting. He's, he's, he made sauerkraut and he started sprouting. It's the first two times he's prepared anything in our kitchen (laughs) and I'm it's really a metamorphosis like he's really into it and he's really like um somebody uh, moved something of his in his in his sprout laboratory and he was very upset about it so he's very focused on it and very inspired by you and it's it's really a huge change so I mean that's amazing I, I mean I have to say Julie when I wrote the book I wasn't th- I, I wasn't thinking anything more than this was a a gift for me to give back like mm-hmm. that I had gleaned this information over a 20 plus year period and that it was so important and when I had you know somewhat of the entrepreneur journey like for me I'm somewhat like Forrest Gump I'm extremely naive about what is appropriate or what not, but I'm also guided. So I met Marianne Williamson, right? Mm-hmm. And so then I pitched Marianne Williamson to go on her podcast to do a podcast about food poverty, food equality during COVID for food sovereignty. And she's like, oh, I think that's really interesting. And let's do it. Yeah, everyone should listen to that interview. So, so the idea that to take a presidential candidate <laughs> and have her talk about sprouts is this connection. Mm-hmm. And when I think about the trillion dollar problem of healthcare, right, where we have people, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, um, all these chronic illnesses, weak immune systems, autoimmune, all of these things are either correlated or caused by food. And when I think about the issue of planetary use of resources, like one cup of sprouts versus like one, you know, eight ounce serving of sprouts versus eight ounce serving of dairy or eight ounce serving of meat or fish, it is a fraction of the environmental um, resources used for it, where it takes 7,000 gallons of water to prepare a hamburger mm-hmm. because you have to feed the cow and the water, the grain, and then all the energy associated where um, to get 
like eight ounces, it's maybe three cups of, of water. So like the, the math on feeding sprouts, using sprouts, and the insight that sprouts aren't a garnish. They're not just used to grow mature vegetables and in farming. The fact that you could eat the sprouts within a week is this whole revelation. And the, the farmers, like cattle farmers, like I just got this thing like last week just connected. Cattle farmers realize that by sprouting the grain, they get more food, healthier food, more nutritious food. So that's the fodder that they're feeding the cows is sprouted grains. It's just another trend that's just happening. Mm-hmm. So I, I think sprouting, we're just at the beginning of this sprouting consciousness. And every day I'm communicating about sprouts to people and whether it's on my Instagram live, I've been doing Instagram lives. I've been and I did one with you, which was really sweet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I've been doing podcasts and I've been doing my own stories. And now I'm learning so much from the collective consciousness of the community because people are asking questions. And those questions are forming fodder for my brain to come up with answers or more things to test. So I'm testing using different waters, different sprouting mediums, different size of jars. And I'm looking at how you know, we could do better. And yesterday someone was talking to me about cost, cost of seeds. And I realized that if you're buying the seeds by the ounce you're paying a lot more than if you buy them by the pound or by the by the ton, right? And so if people can use community sourcing and just clubs, you could pass on the savings and equalize nutrition. Because I really think that um, food, and I've said this before, is that food is really important and that everything you put in your mouth is a decision and it's a choice. And you mentioned the four choices and the four paths that you can go down. So if you can choose to consume the highest quality nutrient on a per calorie basis, that's fresh, that's ripe, that's raw, that you know where it's coming from and you know its origin. It's like, imagine what that's like versus having something that's in a red and yellow box that is concentrations of fat, sugars, and oils, and preservatives, and steroids, and hormones, and antibiotics, and all of these things. Like, like we are living sentient beings. And, you know, there's energy, and light, and processing, and microbes that what I learned yesterday from uh, Fully Raw Christina, which she said, was that Cravings can only come from things that are in or inside you already. So if you manage to shift your focus and transition away from these other toxic things, the cravings will go down. But if oh, yeah, absolutely. So, so, so that's just the beginning. And the, like I'm learning about this. And unlike Juicero, I'm putting myself out there. Every day, I'm mm-hmm. um, talking, learning, socializing, sharing my gifts 
and my knowledge and my experience, um, you know, with anyone who is interested, but I'm not pushing. There's mm-hmm. a big difference where earlier on in my plant-based journey, uh, I was a pusher. Mm-hmm. And now I'm sharing mm-hmm. and I'm listening. And rather than tell people, oh, do this, not that, mm-hmm. I'm inviting them to mm-hmm. consume sprouts. And we've had some people who are now consuming sprouts every day, every week. And some people have taken it to heart and they're adding sprouts to every meal. Some people are eating them raw. Some people are making recipes with them and plain. But it's, I'm seeing this level around the world. Like people are shifting the consciousness to local food. What's more local than your kitchen countertop? It's very local. Right. And I saw Rich's setup. Mm -hmm. He's got a big setup. It's two cubic feet. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Two square feet of countertop space, two total cubic feet. Mm -hmm. And like he's producing, he said yesterday he ate just sprouts. Yeah. He's onto it. He's like, I want to, I want to up my game. I want to be healthier. Listen, we know, uh, being plant-based, uh, advocates as well, that when you start to eat more greens and bring more living foods into your diet, um, it is the first step to really spiritual transformation. And you start to remember the, the dreams and the awarenesses that are in your heart that make you a unique being. And I always share that I really believe in nature. I, that is what my spiritual community water tiger is all about. It's about giving people techniques so that they can remember who they are because each one of us was created in in divinity for a specific expression. And, um, if we can eat, uh, to fuel our body temple, to support this supreme technology that houses our spirit, um, we can really expand and move into the awareness, the strength, the resiliency um, that we are going to need in the coming days, weeks, months, as we are in this planetary uh, transformation. It's, it's, it's not going back to normal. We are moving through and creating a new earth, a new way of being. It is the Aquarian age that is upon us. And uh, eating sprouts is, a, is, is really a spiritual uh, practice because it is coming from the seed and we are all seeds of consciousness. We are um, uh, seeded in this earth from the stars and within the seed contains all the information and the potential. And as we are going through a transformation, so is the plant kingdom. So the entire life uh, ecosystem is going through its own expansion. And by bringing that um, connection with plants into the body temple and really merging with that frequency, we unlock uh, many more layers of awarenesses than, uh, than we even know. And so it's, it's true that sprouts are the highly packed with nutrition, some of the most nutritious, uh, you know, food that you could 
experience and and eat uh, and there are other layers of spiritual awareness that are unseen that are within that process the other thing that i love about sprouts for right now is that i really feel that community is really our greatest resource during these times uh, we're understanding that the systems and structures that we may have believed in we're seeing the illusion and the fact that they're in fact not what we thought they were and even working against uh, to harm humanity to harm us and so um, uh, the community aspect of Sprouts being that it is so universal and accessible to all types of life form every kind of being uh, has access to to move into eating Sprouts and so it's a way for us to connect through a plant through a life form that was given in this world on this planet for this nutrition, for this experience of life. So the living opportunity uh, by consuming sprouts is uh, one that is needed and one that will support us. And I think this is a beautiful journey that you have experienced through all your twists and turns and to come to this moment with your awareness and, and all of your experience in business, in health, in uh, even the discipline and the structures that work well for you in your life, for you to be in this moment at this time, um, living on the earth the way that you are. Um, you bless us all, Doug. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's, it's, I think you said it, it, it was a journey and there was pain along the way and rebirth. And what was important for me was to know that with all of the vitriol and all of like the public visceration along the way, didn't really bother me because I knew that I was learning and that I was getting feedback. So it wasn't failure, it was just feedback. And it was just steps along the way. And that as long as I kept my light shining and as long as I knew that I was still alive and I still felt good and that I was doing my best. And so that was the spiritual part of this to see how I could still think big dream big, want to help people, and also be misunderstood along the way, and not let the misunderstanding and that feedback, which was not positive, um, hold me back. And so as much as I look at where I am today, I feel blessed, I feel grateful, I feel empowered, I feel educated, and the lessons that I learned along that journey could not have been taught to me. Maybe other people can learn sitting in a classroom and other people can learn in other cases. Those lessons, like I had to go through that path. And so now, I feel the best ever. Like I am clear, I am bright, and I'm grateful for you to um, 
share this time with me and mm. to, to chat. Oh, it's so, so beautiful, Doug. Thank you so much. And yeah, I mean, we learn through adversity and that is just the reality of life. And um, uh, we sometimes uh, are only looking for the rosy colored experiences and our personality will want to collect those. But the truth of the matter, it's when we're in the trenches that we really are uh, found and formed and alchemized into the truth of who we are. And so I just um, thank God that you didn't give up and that you kept going. And every time I have ever spoken to you, you always tell me that uh, it's the best day ever. And so, um, Doug, thank you again so much. And where can people find you? I'd say my website for the book is thesproutbook.com. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Evans, D-O-U-G-E-V-A-N-S. So Doug Evans on Instagram, and that's uh, that's it. And I respond. I'm pretty communicative, and I I'm learned how to type recently. So I'm, I'm like type. <laughs> so you'll away. reply. Somebody I reply. Out. Yeah. Okay. Please. Cool. All right, beloved tribe. Thanks so much for joining in this week. Uh, in these times of so much turmoil and uncertainty, uh, I just want to remind you to connect with your heart. Uh, find your way to breathe and know that you are guided. That you are connected and that you are uh, safe and well. Remember that even if no one else believes in you, that I believe in you to find your way into living your most authentic life. How could it be otherwise? You are a divine emanation of consciousness. Thank you for your courage uh, to be a light on the earth and remember to keep returning to the truth of your own heart, your own experience, trust yourself and live in harmony and alignment with what is true for you. Until next time, may grace and beauty surround us all. Namaste.